0: I'm so glad you could join us for this recording of the Refresh Conference held in Harvey Bay in March 2021. I'm Shannon Perrett and I live in far north Queensland and work with Mission Aviation Fellowship. MAP is a Christian organisation that's been providing aviation services in remote and isolated areas around the world for the last 75 years. We fly to more destinations than the top six airlines in the world combined. That's a lot of places. My husband and I have worked for MAF for nearly 13 years now. For six of those years, we worked in Papua New Guinea under the banner of MAF Technology Services. MAF Tech Services P&G don't work with planes, but rather they work with HF radios, sustainable power resources, and equipping local churches and pastors. In 2014, we returned to Australia, and MAF offered us positions in their heavy maintenance facility. In far north queensland when i was first asked to speak this weekend around the theme of homeward bound i took it to prayer to see if this was something that god had lined up for me almost instantly i felt a confirmation in my spirit and a word in my heart straight away my thoughts turned to a time in my life where i was literally bound for home After six years in PNG, it became obvious to us for a number of reasons that our time there was coming to an end, and it was time to return to our passport country, to once again call Australia home. So I've entitled this session's message, Homeward Bound, Lessons Learned from Leaving. I'd like to share some stories with you about our time in PNG and lessons that I learned in leaving PNG. Now, to be honest, not all these lessons were actually learned in the leaving. Some were learned during our time overseas, and most of them were actually learned through the wonderful gift that is hindsight. I've anchored these lessons around the words, life and teaching of the Apostle Paul. We're going to be jumping from book to book in the New Testament, because let's face it, he wrote a lot of them. But I just wanted to open this morning by reading one of my very favorite passages that Paul wrote, and I love it because in a few short verses, there's some key lessons, lessons that were crucial for me personally while I was living in P&G and leaving P&G, but also life lessons that are important for all of us to learn as we travel on the journey homeward bound to our ultimately, ultimate heavenly home. Reading from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 13. Rejoice in the Lord always. or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, that passage is pretty much a sermon in itself, and I could leave it right there, but I'm not going to because I really want to unpack what Paul has to say about a number of things in this passage. But first, just let me tell you a story. One morning at the start of this year, I was out for a run. Okay, so it wasn't really a run, it was more like a jog walk or a jork. <laughs> I often take a path behind an estate close to our house that has a few hills. But where there are hills, there are also valleys. And January in far north Queensland is wet season, and so the valleys or dips in the path regularly fill up with mud, silt, and gravel that has run down from the surrounding banks. As I approached one such dip, I could see mud lying across the path, but I could also see what I thought was a clear section, so I kept running and just aim to avoid any of the mud-washed parts. What I didn't realise, however, was that the parts of the path that I judged only as wet were actually covered with a thin layer of incredibly slippery silt. So I landed on my path and found myself doing a little bit of a wobble dance while I tried to regain my balance and not fall on my bottom. You know, what caused me to get thrown off balance was not actually the mud because I ran the same path the next day and successfully navigated all the hills, dips, muddy and slippery bits. What threw me off was the way that I approached the path and the fact that I expected it to be clear. You know, when our expectations are up here and reality is down here, we have a fair way to fall. I think that when my family and I headed to PNG we'd maybe seen Swiss family Robinson a few too many times. Even though we'd both taken short-term trips to PNG, our expectations didn't quite match the reality that greeted us. While I loved the fact that my husband got the opportunity to travel to remote villages and install HF radio, giving isolated people a lifeline to the outside world, there was also the reality of him being gone for a week or two at a time with no way for me to contact him until he was finished the job and the radio was installed. While living on a compound behind a six-foot-high fence with three other families does give you community and gives the kids constant playmates, there was also the reality of constant audiences as you were trying to exercise, discipline your kids or having a discussion with your spouse. While we enjoyed wonderful relationships with most of our national co-workers and neighbours, there was also the reality of a neighbourhood visitors who liked to brave the fence and the razor wire to see if they could score an umbrella, a pair of shoes or even our water pump. While we were blessed to be only 20 minutes from a mission clinic with excellent facilities, There was also the reality of having to travel back to Australia for scans and specialist appointments when unexpected health issues came up. Now, don't get me wrong, there were plenty of amazing experiences on the field, organising life-saving medivacs, outreaches to villages and complete woo-hoo moments when I managed to balance the books at the end of financial year. But I have to admit that I found myself on more than one occasion thinking, Why does this have to be so hard? I remember feeling surprised that the path of calling and obedience seemed to have so many obstacles along the way. I thought I knew what I'd signed up for, but the reality of dealing with certain situations day in and day out didn't seem to line up with my expectations. I think we can often approach our Christian walk in the very same way. Somehow, somewhere, we've gotten the idea that if we're being obedient and following God's calling, then the path of life will be completely clear. That we'll be fine just to run along without hills, debris or any slippery spots. So when we come up against obstacles and we stumble and maybe fall flat on our bottoms, it seems to come as a real shock. But it shouldn't come as a shock because Jesus gave us a heads up just before he was taken to get crucified, he was sitting down for a big chat with his disciples and he says in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have trouble. You can't get much clearer than that. You will have troubles. And Peter echoes these words in 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. In other words, don't get a shock when tough stuff comes your way. Because trials and troubles will come. You can't obey them away and you can't faith them away. The Bible is full of stories of tough stuff happening to people who were obedient and full of faith. And seeing how Paul is our tour guide this morning, let's just take a look at some of the stuff he had to deal with. And you don't even have to go searching through all of his letters because he sums up. Most of his hardship for us nicely in one succinct passage, reading from second corinthians eleven verses twenty four to twenty seven five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was pelted with stones, three times I was shipwrecked and spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city and in danger in the country, in danger at sea and in danger from false believers. I have laboured and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And yet after all of this, Paul still says in Philippians 4 verse 12, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether living in plenty or living in want. So what did he learn? What was Paul's secret? How did he keep his head and his heart in the right place so that he didn't succumb to disappointment, bitterness, or an attitude of entitlement. I think that one of the ways that Paul had really learned to be content was through managing his expectations. And that is our first lesson learned in this session, manage your expectations. Paul didn't live under the false pretense that if he was serving God, then everything would be smooth sailing. He knew that trials and troubles would come his way. And when they did, he didn't let them overwhelm him. He didn't let them steal his focus, but rather he focused on what they developed. In Romans 5 verses 3 and 5, we read, We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Let those words just sit for a moment and this hope will not lead to disappointment. The kind of hope that Paul's talking about is not a fleeting kind of hope, like I hope I don't come home to a weekend's worth of dishes or I hope my team wins the footy tomorrow. This is the kind of hope that we're told in Hebrews 6.19 is an anchor for our souls, tethering us to a God who hasn't failed us, a God who will catch us when we fall, a God who ultimately doesn't disappoint. In order to manage our expectations, we need to shift our focus from all the obstacles on the path that we're running and instead fix our eyes on the one that we are running towards. One of the expectations I had to learn to manage working for MAP in PNG was the concept that I had in my head that working with other Christians would mean living in an, and working in an environment that was constantly peaceful and harmonious. After all, we were all Christians with similar theological backgrounds there to serve God and work towards a common goal. Now, I don't know if you know this, but getting to the field to serve with a mission. Is hard work. You have to find an organization that you want to work with and one that will have you. Most of them require some kind of Bible training. Then there are a whole lot of immunizations and medical tests to make sure that you can get a visa. You'll most likely have to go and undergo a psychological evaluation. And on top of all that, a majority of organizations require you to be self-funded. So you have to raise all your own financial support. So let's face it, to jump through all those hoops, you have to be pretty determined. Some may say stubborn, but I prefer the term determined or tenacious. You put all those determined people in the same organization and often make them live together behind the same six foot high fence and you are going to get some tension. Which brings us to lesson number two. Conflict is inevitable and not just in mission. Conflict is inevitable in the home, in the workplace, and even in the church. Paul was no stranger to conflict. In Galatians 2, we read about him and Peter going toe-to-toe over the fact that Peter withdrew from his ministry to the Gentiles because he was worried about what other people were thinking. There is another story that Luke tells in Acts about Paul being involved in a conflict, and and that's that story that I'd like to take a closer look at today. It can be found in Acts 15, verses 36 to 41. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are going. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark or John Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So let's just backtrack a bit so we can take a look at what is actually happening here. The guy John, also called John Mark, is actually widely recognized to be the author of the Book of Mark. We're told in Acts 12:12 that his mum Mary, that his mum is Mary, and it's implied that their house was a meeting place for Christians in the early church. In fact, it was their house that Peter went to on the night that he was busted out of prison by angels. So here we have a young man who's been part of the action that surrounded the ascension of Christ and the birth of the early church, which is probably why he was invited by his cousin Barnabas to join him and Paul on the very first missionary journey. They go off together on this mission trip and it's a huge success. People are getting saved and people are getting healed. But after they sailed from Perga in Pamphylia, John Mark says, I'm out, I'm done. And in Acts 13, 13, we're told that he left the group and returned to Jerusalem. Now, we don't really know what made him leave. Some scholars have suggested homesickness. Some believe it was because Paul took over leadership of the group. And yet others have taken into consideration where it was that John departed and suggested that he was fine while teaching in Jewish towns and villages. But like Peter, struggled to minister to the Gentiles. Whatever the reason, he ditched them and they continued on their journey. So when it comes to planning for their second missionary trip, Barnabas is keen to give John Mark a second chance and have him accompany them again. But Paul says, nope, no way, not going to happen. Not after what he did to us in Pamphylia. And we are told they had a sharp disagreement. It would have been easy for Luke to leave this part of the story out or gloss over it so he wouldn't embarrass his friends. But I actually take comfort in the fact that the Holy Spirit directed Luke to include this in his account of the Acts of the Apostles because it shows us that conflict is inevitable and that faithful people falter. I think that because Paul wrote so much of the New Testament and has so many godly and wise things to say, We can often put him on the near-perfect pedestal, but he wasn't perfect, which means he most likely wasn't always right. Interestingly enough, Luke doesn't actually draw the conclusion as to who was right and who was wrong in the situation, and so I don't think we need to either. So what can we learn from this story? Firstly, Paul and Barnabas dealt with the issue that they were facing. They didn't let it fester and they didn't just ignore it, hoping that it would disappear. They dealt with the issue personally. As far as we're told, they didn't appear to involve other people. They also didn't deal with it via email, Facebook or text message. Now, I know that's pretty much a given, but I'm wondering if it should set a standard for us too. Both men sought to honour the Lord and be obedient to him. They both followed their own giftings and callings and went on to take separate missionary journeys, possibly covering more ground and maybe even achieving more apart than they would have together. Finally, Paul and Barnabas didn't let this disagreement alienate them as brothers in Christ. We see evidence of this in 1 Corinthians 9-6, when Paul names Barnabas as setting a noble example in supporting himself. And in Colossians 4 10, he speaks warmly of both Barnabas and John Mark while he's imprisoned. Paul himself encourages us in Romans twelve, sixteen to 18. He says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of a low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Living at peace isn't ignoring issues or sweeping them under the carpet and hoping that they'll disappear. It isn't having to agree about everything or even pretending to. And it isn't accepting bad or bullying behaviour or covering it up with band-aid fixes. That is not living at peace. Living at peace is having face-to-face conversations that are fair, frank and friendly. Living at peace is having healthy boundaries, knowing when to say no and to even step away. Living at peace is being able to agree, to disagree and still accept one another as siblings in the family of Christ. I have to confess that I've read that directive to live at peace with everyone and thought surely he can't mean everyone. What about that guy at work that seems to have a toddler temper tantrum when he doesn't get his own way? How do I live at peace with him? But what about that lady at church who is super critical and they even said some nasty things to my kids? How do I live at peace with her? How do we, as far as it depends on us, live at peace with the difficult people in our life? Well, Paul also penned the words, I can do All things through Christ who strengthens me. With this statement, he makes the point that when we come up against hard people or hard situations, we don't have to deal with them in our own strength, but rather in Christ's. During our time in PNG, I spent a couple of days a week doing the role of administration finance manager at Math Technology Services. This was not a job that I'd applied for or ever really imagined myself doing, but rather it was a role that I stumbled into after another staff member retired and went home. While I'd studied business at uni and had some bookkeeping experience, I most definitely was not an accountant and I knew more than anyone that this role and what it required was far beyond anything that I'd done before. Shortly after taking up residence at the desk, I hung up a poster with the words of Paul from 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, which reads, My grace is all you need. My power works best in your weakness. It was very strategically placed as I needed to be able to see it out of the corner of my eye while I worked on my computer. I needed to be able to see it as I did the payroll, reconciled accounts and finalised reports. I needed to be able to see the verse because I knew that in my own strength there was no way that I could complete those tasks in the couple of days a week that I had available to me. I needed to be reminded on a regular basis what my greatest asset was as I filled this role. It wasn't my bookkeeping experience. It wasn't my amazing house, Mary. It wasn't my ability to phone a friend in the Math Mount Hagen office when I needed assistance. That verse reminded me that my greatest asset that I could bring to the role was to acknowledge my weakness and claim the sufficiency of strength that can only come from God. Which brings us to lesson number three: rely on His strength, not your own. Now, I would like to say that I learned that lesson back when I started doing that role and I never had to learn it again. But sometimes I'm as hard-headed as I am determined. And so the lesson to rely on God's strength rather than my own seems to be one that just keeps coming back to me again and again. I remember learning that lesson as we packed up to leave PNG and I was trying to balance job handover, packing farewells and the uncertainty of returning home to Australia all at the same time. God had to remind me to rely on his strength and not my own again as we settled in far North Queensland found a house, adjusted to new schools, job, church and came to terms with the fact that coming home to Australia felt very foreign in many ways. And more recently, I needed to learn the lesson again as COVID hit and I struggled to work from home while supervising the homeschooling of my three kids and doing my best to support my parents on strict isolation due to health issues. And yet, even after all those lessons, I still find myself trying to do things in my own strength, wearing my self-sufficiency like a badge. But the truth of the matter is that continually striving to do things in our own strength will likely lead to anxiety, exhaustion and possibly even burnout. Dominic Muir, in his devotional, God Hunger, puts it like this. Those who fall back on self-reliance and their own resourcefulness to navigate life, who have taken on the principles of the world, unwittingly or otherwise, will know the daily pressure to perform and be dogged by a constant sense of failing to reach an acceptable standard. For those who are dead to self, humbled and dependent, the pressure is off. We live to play a role in God's story, not he in ours. He is God. We are not. He is central. We are peripheral. It's all about him, not about us. There is freedom in that truth. The pressure is off. I wonder if maybe that is a truth that God wants to whisper into your heart. You need to stop striving so hard. You need to surrender your workload and weakness To God, and instead take a firm grasp on that promise His grace is all you need. His power works best in weakness. Now, there is one final lesson that I learned from leaving that I'd like to share with you, and that is a lesson that underlies every other lesson because without it, we can't manage our expectations or live at peace with everyone or learn to rely on His strength rather than His own. So if you've let your minds wander at all, just let me reel you back in because you're not going to want to miss this one. Ready? Pray. I know, mind-blowing, right? But I think the real lesson to learn is to pray in the way that Paul encourages us to. In 1 Thess- Thessalonians 517 17-18, he instructs us to never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. And in Ephesians 6.18, Paul reminds us to pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. And of course, there's that awesome passage that we started with this morning. And so I'm just going to read it to you from the message version. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the centre of your life. I'd just like to close by sharing a story about a time in PNG where the importance of prayer hit home to me in a pretty big way. About 9pm on Monday night, April 2013, I was returning home from our monthly prayer meeting with a national co-worker. I was driving our vehicle up to the gate of our compound and I just hit the remote to open the gate when I saw a shadow out of the corner of my eye. A man came to my locked car door and pointed a gun directly at me through my closed window. Now I'm positive I saw him pull the trigger, heard a click, but by the grace of God, the gun didn't actually fire. He still kept pointing it at me, though, motioning me to drive in the gate. He proceeded to hold the gate open so another armed man could enter, and they followed us into the yard. My husband had come downstairs to open the garage for me and he was forced to the ground in the corner of the garage. By this time it had registered what was happening and all of a sudden this Baptist chick became very Pentecostal and I raised my hand to the roof of the car and prayed and man did I pray. The assailant that had ushered me into the garage came to my window demanding cash and any other valuables. He was clearly frustrated when we Told him that we didn't have anything with us. I'd been to a prayer meeting and I didn't even have my billum bag with me, which I usually took everywhere. I did have my prayer points, but he didn't seem too interested in those, <laughs> nor was he particularly interested in my explanations of why I didn't have any cash on me. He proceeded to walk back and forth between my husband on the ground and me in the car, and from his behaviour, it was quite apparent that he was probably on some kind of drugs. At one point, he came and stood at my open door and pointed his gun directly at my head and he told me to shut my mouth or I would die. Now, I know that many of you don't know me too well, but when you do, you'd know that I don't shut my mouth that easily. (laughs) So I turned around and told him and talked pissing that if I died right then, I was going to meet my Heavenly Father. Even all these years later, I can't quite decide if that was a God-given courage that made me say that or maybe human stupidity. Whatever it was, it didn't make him happy and he proceeded to storm around our garage. He marched back over to where my husband was sitting and he picked up a bush knife or a machete and slammed it into the concrete inches from where my husband was crouched down. But through the grace of God, the man didn't harm him. He did, however, take a nice chunk of concrete out of the garage floor. He eventually seemed to calm down as we spoke to him in urgent tones, convincing him that we were missionaries who were there to help his one-talks or family in bush places. It was important that he knew that, as there seems to be a respect for missionaries in PNG who aren't there to make money but but rather contribute. He almost seemed apologetic as he eventually backed out of the gate with his friend. It was only then that I realised that the other man had been in our house where our three girls were in bed. We ran into the house to find our camera, laptops, wallets, and phones had all been stolen. But by the grace of God, our three girls laid in bed, sleeping peacefully. The next morning, we made the decision not to tell our girls what had happened until they got home from school but we did want to know if they'd seen or heard anything, so I just simply asked them how they'd slept. My eldest, who had a room all to herself, told me that she decided to sleep with the door closed last night when she usually always slept with the door open and had slept really well. My middle one, who at the time was seven, shared a room with her four-year-old sister. She got a strange look on her face and she told me that she'd had an unusual dream And in that dream, she'd seen friendly white giants standing in the doorway of her room. No matter how many times I share this story, that always gives me goosebumps because I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God, our Father, sent angels down to watch over my girls while they slept. When I look back on that night, I don't think about all the items that we lost. I think about the goodness of God and all the ways that he answered our prayers and the prayers of others who I knew were praying for us. The way the trigger was pulled and no shots were fired. The way that that machete slashed into the concrete inches from where my husband was sitting, but he wasn't harmed. The way that God kept my husband and I safe and remarkably calm amidst dangerous circumstances. But most of all, I think about the amazing way that God answered our prayers for protection by sending angels to watch over our girls while they slept. God answers prayer. I don't know what prayer is on your heart right now. It might be something rather simple or it might be something that comes from a much deeper place like a longing of the soul. healed body a restored relationship or maybe for a loved one who desperately needs to come home to jesus can i invite you just right here right now to let that prayer just float into your conscious mind perhaps it is a prayer that you lost faith in and gave up praying a long while ago maybe it's something that's really just come to the surface recently and seems to be sitting on your chest and making it hard to breathe can I just encourage you to offer that prayer up again and pray without ceasing because sometimes the answers may not look like what we had envisaged or may not even come in our timing but God answers prayer.